Hello, this is Melanie McMullen and Hannah Hurley, and you're listening to the IoT Integrator Wire brought to you by the channel company and sponsored by Intel. We focus on integrators and innovators who are building Internet of Things technology solutions. Our stories are available online at www.theiotintegrator.com, on Twitter at IoT Solution Provider, and on Flipboard at the IoT Integrator Update. This is episode 16, Data, Data Everywhere, Putting It to Work. And today we welcome Dave Austin. He's a senior principal engineer at Intel. He holds a patent actually for development of a method for manufacturing a semiconductor component. And he's also Intel's only Kaggle Grandmaster. So welcome, Dave. Hi, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So let's start. Tell us just a little bit about yourself and just share some insights on what you do at Intel. Yeah, sure. So I'm a uh, data scientist uh, at Intel. Uh, data science is my my job and my hobby and my passion. Uh, so I'm fortunate to be able to, to, to do it for Intel. Uh, I'm specifically focused on the industrial AI space. So I try to help bring uh, solutions to life. So actually building algorithms and, and uh, AI models that our partners and, and ecosystem players can use to solve real problems out in the industrial space. Uh, so I'm uh, as part of that, though, I'm interested more broadly in how AI can solve problems across other verticals, not just industrial, so things like healthcare. And as such, right now, I'm very focused on an area called federated learning, which is around taking all these data silos that we have around the world and being able to train them separately. So we get the benefit of aggregating data, even though we actually don't. So got a lot of broad-based interest in, in AI. Oh, that's super interesting. So I, let's start with some of the basics. I, you're the first and actually only Kegel Grandmaster I've ever spoken with. So let's um, just start with that. And I know to save our audience um, searching what that is, just can you tell us a little bit um, about what a Kegel Grandmaster is? Sure. Yeah. So Kegel is a data science platform that's pretty well known in the data science community. It's It started off as a, a, a competition hosting website where companies like uh, Netflix or Microsoft or or even Intel would, would host a challenge and, and bring in data and they would attract data scientists from around the world to compete for oftentimes for, for prizes on solving, coming up with the best solution to a problem using AI uh, techniques and methods. And, and over time, it has grown to be I believe the largest data science platform, um, they've got about somewhere in the neighborhood of 200,000 or, 200, or so uh, active users. Um, and on any given competition, there may be you know, between 1,000 and uh, up to 5,000 people uh, competing on, on the same data set. So uh, a grandmaster is a title that you can get once you achieve a certain level of performance across competitions. And there are about a hundred, last I checked, about 180 Kaggle uh, uh, competition grandmasters out of about the 200,000 participants. So it's about the top 0.1% or so. So it's it's, it's definitely a, a great honor for me. And um, you know, competing with some of the top data scientists in the world, you know, on challenges that are actually you know fun and, and enjoyable yeah. to do, and and help move your uh, you know your data science uh, uh, skills and, and journey along. So. So yeah, so it's a it's a great community to be a part of, and uh, it, it's really something that that anybody could do, just given enough uh, time and dedication and, and interest in the field. 
uh, that's pretty fascinating. I don't know if anybody could, but um, you know, <laughs> you're you're pretty humble about that. So, can you give us? I know that um, I've been reading some about your competition in um, image classification. Um, can you give us a couple of examples of some of the interesting challenges that you've looked at in the competition? Yeah, sure. So, you know, one of the the challenges uh, that really kickstarted things for me is there was a a challenge of a few years about three years ago called uh, ships versus icebergs, where you were giving, given a bunch of satellite uh, images and had to classify uh, whether there was a ship or an iceberg uh, in the image. And the, these, these images were very fuzzy looking images to the human eye. You really couldn't tell if I put them in front of you, you would have no idea what you're looking at. It looked like a 1970s TV with a bunch of snow in it. And, and, and so it was really kind of eye-opening to me at the time, just proving the power of what AI could do if, if applied in, in the right way. And of course, there's a practical application on the other side of this that the competition sponsor was interested in is actually using these and deploying these in the real world. So ships, as they're traveling around the world, know whether they're you know, on, on, on course to, to hit an iceberg or, or if there's friendly ships nearby. So, uh, so that was a really interesting competition for me. At the time, it was the largest uh, uh, scale in terms of number of participants uh, image classification uh, uh, competitions that that had existed up to that point, and so uh, I was very very fortunate to 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 win that one. Um, it also kind of just opened my eyes to you know some of the the techniques that a data scientist can use to do well in, in these sort of competitions. And one of those techniques is something called uh, model stacking or ensembling, where you, you need to take a bunch of different diverse models that you train separately and independently. And then when you combine the results, you actually get continued boosts in performance. And so, you know, so that, that, that learning kind of led to additional competitions that piqued my interest. Another really interesting one is uh, this one was, was hosted by Google maybe a couple of years ago called inclusive images. And, and, and this one again was eye-opening because AI models are really good at returning information on what they're trained to do. So if I train a model to perform a certain task, I can get it to perform well on that task. What AI is not very good at is when you train it to perform a certain task and then you give it data from a different domain or that looks slightly different from what it was trained on, it's not very good at returning that type of information. And in the real world today, there are a lot of AI models, especially dealing with humans that are trained on North American and, and European data sets and on North American and European faces. But if you go and try to apply that in a different domain or different geography, they don't generalize very well. If I were to try to classify what a wedding looks like, let's say in the United States, and then give an AI model a image of a wedding in India, well, those two things would look quite different. But as a data scientist, I want them to return the same information. So this inclusive images competition was all about that. How can I take a, a set of data trained and uh, primarily coming from sources in North America and Europe and get it to generalize well so it could classify those additional uh, um, you know, events or, or, or classification types across different geographies. And that, that requires a, a very uh, kind of a broader set of techniques that you need to apply to get these models to generalize well, because this is one of the big challenges we have in AI today is what I would consider generalization or, or training once and being able to do inference across different data types and in, in, in different domains. So that, that was another really interesting and, and challenging problem to work on. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I can see some great applications of that, say in healthcare, you know, where you're looking at different cells or maybe cancer cells or something where it's trying to identify, you know, patterns. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah, we have to get out of this mode where, you know, we're, we're, we're taking point problems and creating point solutions because that's not something that's very scalable. So yeah, the more we can help, uh, uh, you know, AI generalize, you're, you're exactly right. There, there's many applications that open up for us. Right. And uh, yeah, I did see those um, ships versus iceberg images. And I, I don't know how even AI could determine those. It was pretty fascinating. I, I hope our, our uh, listeners actually look online and look for your images because those were pretty interesting to look at. And uh, you, you cer- certainly learn a lot from uh, trying to you know decipher what those are. That's exactly right. Well, it sounds like you've devoted a lot of your professional career to machine learning and data science. I'm curious about how you first became interested in these topics. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I've worked at Intel for 21 years, and about the first two thirds of that I spent in our manufacturing environment in our fabs, working on solving problems like, uh, uh, you know, uh, why, how can we get better yield on our, our silicon chips, and how can we improve the performance uh, of our chips, um, and look, and essentially looking for needles in the haystack of our manufacturing process to try to find these improvement opportunities. So. It's an area where required, I would say around 20% domain knowledge of how you make semiconductor manufacturers, but about 80% of it was data. And it was really data science before the industry started calling it data science. It was using this vast amount of data to be able to draw inferences and conclusions. And back in the early 2000s, it was a lot of, you know, statistics and things like multivariate analysis, but, you know, about seven or eight years ago, it got to the point where I realized, well, hey, you know, this, this domain of AI is taking off, and I've got a lot of this experience in data analysis. Can I try to maybe put those two together and learn, you know, expand my knowledge base with data and just apply it in a different way? And so that's, that's how I really first got started in, in AI, but I would say it was building on a pretty large data analysis base. And, you know, it, it, I would say seven or eight years ago, I mean, that was around the, the, the latest anyway, golden age of AI, as we were starting to learn more about these machine learning models and how they worked. And then this thing called deep learning came along and that it op- opened up a new field. And so it's something that, uh, you know, I really got interested in that, that's working on these AI competitions, like through Kaggle really not only motivated me, but really helped me learn. One, one of the advantages of being a part of a community like that is not only are you working on the same problem with others, um, the people are very open in the community in terms of sharing their code, sharing their techniques. And so it really accelerates your learning. And if you're a visual learner like I am, there's really no substitute for being able to see how another top data scientist actually solve a problem, reading through their code, understanding how it's applied, working on the same data set. So it, it really is a boost, you know, accelerant to your ability uh, to learn quickly. And so, you know, it's really just a combination of that that data background being in the right place at the right time as AI was taking off and, you know, finding a great platform like Kaggle to, to continue to learn. And, you know, those, those three coming together is really what, uh, what accelerated my, my data science journey. Well, it's nice to hear that um, people are so collaborative there because a lot of times people just um, tend to work in such silos. So it's nice to hear that you have some peers that will share information with you. That's right. That's right. And, you know, I, and I would say that is a, 
common trait in the AI community today, you know, where previously the way people shared information is, you know, there's research projects or universities would work on a, uh, on a program. They would write up a paper, send it to a journal. It would get vetted, eventually published. And, you know, that's a nine month to year plus cycle. And the data science community today, it's, it's actually quite amazing. People will come up with new innovations, new learnings all the time, and they will go straight to preprint. They will go straight to, you know, archive, publish a paper, and it's available within a couple or three weeks. And so it's really shortened the learning cycle. And it's kind of all driven from this, this open source mindset and ability to, to quickly publish has really shortened that learning cycle for all of us. And the, and the whole community wins that way. And, you know, it's evidenced by the fact AI has taken off in the way that it has. So, yeah, I, I agree with your, your sentiment is that uh, the community is very, very open and really everybody wins in that kind of environment. Well, speaking of AI taking off, I, I found it interesting that you said that seven or eight years ago, I think was the golden age, but right now there's so much buzz about it. I was wondering if you could talk about what's happening in industrial AI-based solutions and some of the actual usage and adoption that you're seeing. Yeah, um, the actual usage and adoption in industrial AI is is certainly taking off. You know, the, these innovations that that we've been learning around uh, um, AI over the past seven years or so have started to make its way onto factory floors into production environments, and so you see a steady stream of publications from, from the big players around, hey, we're using AI to solve this problem, or we're using AI to solve that problem. And, and, and in this context, this and that usually means some sort of visual anomaly detection. That's the number one use case that I think is, um, you know, getting to a level of maturity where the, the barrier to entry and the cost of implementation is low enough where it makes financial sense. And like anything, you know, solution is going to take off when it, when it uh, you know, it's got a positive ROI. And so, so that's good. But I would also say that therein also lies the problem is that, you know, we are getting these one-off, hey, I used AI to solve this problem and that problem. And as I was talking about before around this, you know, scalability and generalization issue, I think that's more than anything what's preventing us from taking the next step at this point is still today, you know, if I'm a manufacturer, you know, in an industrial environment and I'm making a widget, well, okay, I can go in and I can stick a data science team on that problem and, and train a model to deliver me a solution and go and deploy it. But you know that today that's about a three to five month cycle and there's a certain cost associated with that. But, but if I want to and I'm dedicated, I can solve that problem. The question I have as the owner of this widget factory is, okay, how do I now bring AI and solve that same problem for widget B and widget C and widget D and on that line and in this factory and under those conditions and you know make it more broadly scalable and usable? I think that's the next challenge that we have in front of us that's going to give us our next big step function up. And it's around this concept of generalization. And to make a long story short, you know, we're going to be able to solve that problem when we learn a little bit more about controlling some of our environmental conditions, about applying different types of learning to that problem. Most learning today is still applied in the form of what, what, what I guess at this point you'd have to say is classical or traditional AI where there's supervised learning where we train on, let's in this context, labels that have a certain or, or images that have certain labels to them. There's new methods of learning like 
supervised or sorry, semi-supervised or unsupervised learning where you don't have to have that additional context. I can now train only on good images. And then I learned the difference between the good and bad that way. So, so there, there, there's an evolution that's happening. Uh, we're, we're still along that journey. I'm pleasantly, uh, um, you know, enjoying seeing some of these implementations that, that we're getting today. But on the other end of the spectrum, um, you know, what I'm concerned about is how can we help overcome some of these barriers of skill that are in front of us so we can, so we can truly realize all, all the potential benefit that, that AI can bring to us. So, so, so we're on the way. I, I'd say, you know, if I were to put a percent on it, we're, we're about 20% of the way there. So great progress, but there's still a, a lot in front of us. Yeah, it sounds like it. They, a lot of, is ahead of us. Mm -hmm. um, I want to shift a little bit and talk about what is at root at AI, and that's you know all the data and whatever its shape or form. A lot of companies and a lot of tech companies like to talk about being data driven, but they're often challenged in using the data that they collect. What are some practical ways that companies can put their data to work, either in AI or analytics or other ways, so that they can be a data driven company? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a that's a really thought provoking question. So, um, you know, in terms of putting data to work, uh, and not it not just being a slogan. Um, one of the first things is you have to have the data aggregated and in, in, in you know to have it all useful in, in, in a um, certain context. So, for instance. If I'm collecting a bunch of data in the lab and it's over on this workstation over here, and then I've got you know my other manufacturing line and I've got data over here in this database, and and oh by the way those two databases don't talk to each other. Well, I've just hindered my ability to learn and, and make use of, of all that data, and I I can't put it to work in the same way as if it was aggregated. I could put that information in proper context with each other, line it up by time. Uh, you know, combine information about what what defects look like on on two different parts on two different assembly lines. So, uh, you know, data consolidation and aggregation is certainly one thing people can do to to help make uh, data work for them better. You know, the other is is in the context specifically around AI, it's important to have the right type of data, and oftentimes, more often than not that data doesn't exist today. That's why there's so many new deployments that are going in that require new infrastructure, things like uh, you know, new cameras, um, you know, the ability to, to acquire this data and then quickly put it to use. So you know, again, to your question about how do, how do we get data to work for us? Well, we've got to make sure that we're, we're set up to collect the data in, in the most useful way. Data in and of itself has no inherent value. It's only it's only what we do with it that that provides the value. And you know, as the saying goes, it's garbage in and garbage out. If I if I'm this manufacturer of, of of my or owner of my widget factory, that that data that I'm putting together to solve my problems on my factory floor is only useful in the context of it actually being applied to a specific problem. So I've got to make sure I understand where that data came from, how it was collected, under what conditions, how do those conditions change over time? All of this contextual information that can show up in the form of metadata also have to be uh, encompassed as well. So th those are the two biggest things I think people can do maybe differently than what we're doing today is more, more purposeful data collection and more data aggregation and consolidation. Um, and those will be two big step forwards for us in terms of making data work for us. In your opinion, do you think 
COVID and having to respond to COVID, say in healthcare or even in our supply chain, may make um, companies be more data driven? Yeah, uh, I, I think it's it's become far more of a necessity, especially as we've seen supply chains crimped, uh, the types of problems that we need to solve with COVID being being more uh, workers being more remote, having to collaborate on projects differently, where data is the central point of, of collaboration. It's certainly driven up the the need, the desire, and the demand. Uh, to be more data-driven and purposeful uh, with, with what we're dealing with. And, oh, by the way, I, I think that trend is, is only going to continue. Um, you know, a lot of last year, a lot of the manufacturers and industrial AI were figuring out, you know, how do I get people back into my factory? And once they're back into the factory, I need to be prepared, you know, so, you know, if this is the, the type of environment that we're going to continue in, I need to invest in more infrastructure, you know, more automated data collection, more automated solutions like AI. So yeah, so I think, you know, COVID has opened our eyes to not only the possibility of what this, you know, data-centric infrastructure looks like, but it's just going to prove a, a, as an accelerant for it going forward. Thanks, Dave. I really appreciated all the great information in your time today. This is Melanie McMullen and Hannah Hurley, and you've been listening to the IoT Integrator Wire, sponsored by Intel. You can learn more about IoT solutions on our website at www.theiotintegrator.com or follow us on Twitter at IoT Solution Provider and on Flipboard at the IoT Integrator Update. Thanks for listening and stay connected.